0: And so Paul is going to urge them to walk in a manner worthy of the salvation that they have received through Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul is going to ask them to do in living for Christ is not difficult. It is impossible in our own power. And so Paul takes a time between the transition from the first part to the second part to pray for the Ephesians, to pray for strength in them, to pray for Christians from all time, that we who trust in Christ would be strengthened to live in a manner worthy of the calling. That we have. And so we've been spending, uh, the the last three weeks and today looking at this prayer from Paul, seeing how it is instructional to our own prayer life because it is scripture. And so I just briefly want to review it one last time. Paul starts by showing us a foundation of prayer truths that develop a passion in us for prayer. Some of those truths is that uh, God is big. That He can carry us through the deep waters of life. That God can carry us in the most difficult times. That we are small. That we indeed need God. We cannot live life independently. We cannot grow into the righteousness God calls us to on our own. That we desperately need God. That God is a loving Father that we can go to Him because He is Dad and He cares for us and He is gentle and warm. And so we can go to Him asking our Father, asking Dad for requests. Finally, we saw that God has no budget, that He is limitless in His ability to answer our prayers. And so we can go to God confidently and boldly Asking God and praying to God. The second and third week we looked at the content of prayer. What is it that God, that Paul prays for, for the Ephesians? The first week we saw that he prays that we would be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. Am I on? That Christ would expand in our hearts. That he would take every room of our hearts and that we would give dominion over to him. And then last week we looked at the uh, love of God. That the love of God is the foundation. That it is the soil in which we are rooted to grow into the fullness of God. And so those are the prayer, that's the prayer that Paul has been praying. That is the prayer that we should be praying for those that we love. This week we're going to look finally at the goal of Paul's prayer. What is the ultimate goal of Paul's petitions? What is the ultimate goals of Paul's Prayer. That's what we're going to look at today. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read uh, 14 through 21. But today we're going to focus primarily on verses 20 and 21. So Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, God, as we come to your Word, it is futile unless your Holy Spirit is working in our heart. And so we pray that your Spirit would work to apply the Scriptures to our hearts, to our lives, that we would be transformed, that we would no longer live for our glory, but that we would more and more, day by day, live for your glory. That is our goal. That is Paul's goal. That is your goal. We pray that you would make it happen. In Christ's name, Amen. After serving in Afghanistan, twenty-two-year-old Jordan Olson returned home to the Audogamy airport. And as he returned home, he came to a he came home to a hero's welcome. He got off the plane and his family was there with signs. They were crying. They were welcoming him with hugs and kisses. But not just his family was there. There was also newspaper reporters. And there were uh, representatives from different distinguished military groups like the military honor guard and the uh, representatives from the veterans of foreign wars and representatives from the American Legion. And so all these people were there. And they were lining the hallway all for one purpose, to pay honor and respect to this soldier And the reason why they were all turning out to pay respect to this soldier was because he was not just any other soldier. As he got off the plane, you could see on his uniform, he had different badges for for being a sergeant, for being a parachutist. When he came off the plane, he came off limping. Because, as he had explained, he was next to an explosion and it hurt his leg. And so he went down the hallway shaking hands as people waved American flags, giving honor to him. You can imagine what a moving scene this was. But there was just one problem. Two days later, the public found out that most of what he was was a lie. Uh, He did serve in Afghanistan. He actually did patrol near Kandahar and certainly deserves our respect. But he was never a parachutist. He never even went to parachute school. And he actually never was a sergeant. (laughs) He was faking the limp. And so as the public found out what was going on, people went to him and they said, why did you fake all this stuff? Why did you do this? And Olson said this, he said, I just wanted my family to be proud of me and overstepped some boundaries I shouldn't have overstepped. The article that I was reading went on to say that Olson could actually be prosecuted under an act which is called the Stolen Valor Act, which was made up in 2005, which prohibits claiming military honors that were not earned. And so he could have been prosecuted under that. Now, why was Jordan in so much trouble? Jordan was in trouble because he was claiming the honor and the respect and the gratitude that was not due to him. It was due to somebody else. As we look at God's word today, it is easy to confess that I could probably be prosecuted on the stolen valor act, not for impersonating a soldier, but for taking the glory that is due God And giving it to myself. In life, as things go well, whether it be uh, ministry success, or in business, or in marriage, or whatever it might be, sports. There is always a temptation that we would seek the glory for ourselves. That we would not give the glory to God, but that it would come to us and it would end with us. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, be encouraged from now, every now and then. We know Barnabas was a son of encouragement, and that was an excellent thing, and so it's right and good to be encouraged. But the glory never ends with us. The glory always goes through us to God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here today. And the reason why the glory goes to God is because God is the initiate of the power for everything we do in life. Paul says that because God is the power giver, God must be the glory getter. You get that? Because God is the power giver, God must be the glory getter. That's what we're going to focus on today. That's what Paul's prayer is. This is his doxology. So let's focus on the first one, that God is the power giver. Look at verse 20 with me, if you would. It says, Now to him, which is God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Paul starts by directing his praise to God. And I love that Paul doesn't just simply say, Praise be to God. Paul says, I want to tell you a little bit about this God that we're getting ready to praise. And so he focuses and he starts praising God for his power. Now, why does Paul, out of all the attributes that he could pick from God, his holiness, his righteousness, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, Paul picks God's power to emphasize. Why is that? Well, it's because Paul has just prayed, just prior to this, that we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that we would be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus had said. And we know, we know that we're not perfect. And we know that to grow in the likeness of Christ, it is only by the power of God. And so Paul emphasizes, I am praying to the one who is powerful. The one who, as he says here, is able. And he goes on to talk about God's power and he says that God's power is abundant. He says God is able to do far more abundantly in the greek here paul's actually making up words because the words that he has will not adequately describe the power that god has you know it's kind of like if you go to a burger joint we do this all the time go to a burger joint and you have a hamburger and it's not just delicious it's not just super it's superlicious right that's what Paul's kind of saying here. I mean, Paul is exaggerating the power of God. And sometimes we don't see it when we read the English, but it's been translated exceedingly abundantly or even super abundantly above the greatest abundance. And so that's how powerful Paul believes God is. And this is the power that is accessible to those who are in Christ. He goes on to say that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask Or think God can do more than you can even imagine he can do more than what you ever ask for he can provide more abundantly than that and sometimes God does that doesn't he sometimes God gives us more than we even ask for when I was thinking through how I've seen this in my life just presently the one that really sticks out to me as we celebrate our one-year anniversary is Jacob's well Uh, Some of you have heard this before, but it's good to brag on God and show how he is such an abundant God to us. Um, When we first started planning for Jacob's well, we had a couple different goals. And I'll just share two of them with you of things that we asked God for. We asked God if we could start service in September of last year. And God so abundantly blessed that we actually were able to start it six months earlier than that. And that's why we just celebrated our anniversary. Another goal that we asked God for is that we would have two community groups by September of 2010. And God so abundantly answered that, that we had five community groups of people doing life together. God just abundantly poured out his blessing upon us. And so those were the things that we asked. And he gave to us abundantly, more than we asked for. But God also did things that we could have never imagined, never just to set the baseline for you, we are told as church planners, here's what the average church does. The average church will take four years to reach 100 people. That's the average church of the churches that make it. There's a lot that never make it past the first year. And so we're sitting there. We're not asking God for anything. We're just saying this is the way it's going to be. At our one-year one anniversary, uh, we were blessed. We had 188 people at the worship service. And we had an additional 20 or 30 people that came to eat and to join us for the Acoustic cafe Now those are things that we didn't even imagine to ask God. Because we didn't want to be disappointed. And He provided abundantly. He provided things that we could have never even imagined. And so what this does is this stretches us to not mild, meek prayer requests. We don't don't offer God prayers that are manageable for Him, right? Like, I don't want to ask too much from God because I don't want to be disappointed. Paul said, you can pray big because we have a big God who is able to do everything. Now, the other thing this does, knowing that God can answer every prayer, is it gives us great comfort when we don't see God answering us what we would classify as abundantly Or doing things that we don't even ask. Because what we know is that the reason why God doesn't answer the prayer the way you want to is not because he's not able to. You get that? The prayer that you ask that God says no to or later, that answer is not because he only has a limited amount of resources and he gives a little bit to this person and a little bit to that person. It's because God always answers you according to his love. He answers you according to his glory. He answers you according to his wisdom. Parents, we do this all the time. The kids say, can I have another bucket of candy? <laughs> right? They don't, they don't know. It's not good for them. We love them. and We say, no, you can't have that. And so God is able to provide abundantly. God is also, God also, or Paul shows us in this passage, not only can God provide abundantly, but God's power is proven, that he has a proven power in our lives. And I love this because Paul doesn't say, here, let me prove to you how powerful God is. Look at the earthquakes. Look at the mountains. Look at the, the Grand Canyon. Look at the stars. Look at the sun. Look at the universe. That's not how Paul proves his power. Do you know how Paul proves God's power? Look with me right here. Verse 20, he says, I'll read again. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, evidence of God's power, the greatest evidence of God's power is you. You are the evidence of God's amazing majestic power and you might say how i I don't think i exude god's power i don't think i show god's power how do i show god's power well paul has showed us throughout the first three chapters of this book how we show the power of god we were all dead in our sin completely cut off from god spiritually dead to god But God loved us, and He raised us to new life. That is power. Paul actually talks about it. If you would look in Ephesians 1, it's probably just the page before in your Bible. But in Ephesians 1, 19-21, Paul talks about the power that God has given to us. He says this in Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? who fills all in all. And so what Paul says here is that God has shown his power to us by raising us from spiritual death, by reconnecting us to God through the cross, paying for our sin so that we could be raised to life with Jesus. That's what we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks with Easter, that Christ is alive, but that we too are alive if we trust in Jesus Christ. But the power is even greater than that. It's not just that we are saved, that we are given new life. It's that we are now able to conquer sin in our life through the power of God. He talks about in this passage in Ephesians 1 that because we are united to Jesus Christ, we have power over every dominion, over Satan, over the flesh, over everything, Because the power of God is in us. And so as we struggle through this life to grow closer to God, to grow in our holiness, to grow into the fullness of God, as things in our life are overcome with victory because of the power of God, it attests to the power of God. And so as addictions and attitudes and frustrations in your life, as you, through the power of God, triumph over those, you are displaying the power of God to a watching world. And so when God says, I'm going to prove to you I am powerful, he doesn't point to the mountains, he doesn't point to the solar system, he points to the Christian. And says, look at the power I am working in you through Christ by grace. And so this power is a proven power that Paul is praising God for. So since God is the power giver, God is the glory getter. That's where we get to in verse 21. Read along with me if you would. Paul says to him, the power giver, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, what does it mean to give God glory? I think that's a term, if you've been in Christian circles, you probably hear this lingo a lot. You know, give glory to God. Glorify God. What does that mean? Practically. When we give glory to God, does that mean we are adding to God? That we are making, we are, we are filling up his insecurities and we are making him feel better about himself? That he's actually valuable and worthy and worthwhile? No, <laughs> obviously not. Can't improve perfection. But what we are doing is we are attesting to who God already is. We're worshiping God his already perfection. We're worshiping his already power that is perfect and complete. And so when we come in here Sunday mornings and we glorify God through worshiping him, we are not we are not creating something for him. We're attributing who he already is. We are claiming what he has already done through the cross of Christ. His love and his grace. And so we can do this 24/7 in our work, in our play, in our marriage. We have opportunities To glorify God. To show who He is. There was the marriage conference just a few weeks ago. And one of the statements that I heard from many of you that went. Was a statement that your marriage is going to be a picture of the gospel. Of Christ's love for His church. And is your marriage telling the truth? Was the challenge. See, even in marriage you have an opportunity to display the glory of God. And to glorify God. And so that's what it means to give glory to God now where is God glorified here in this passage? He says to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now Christ Jesus is the head of the church This is his body. We are his parts. He is the head But he says the church is where God is to be given glory now Christians the church has a very unique opportunity We have an opportunity to give glory to God because we know God. Those who are not Christians, those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, they do not know God. They cannot give glory to someone that they do not know. See, God will use all the other people. God will use all all of creation to glorify himself. But we have a unique opportunity to give glory to God because we know him. And so he says his church is to be the one glorifying him. And we are to do it together. This is not just Christians individually glorifying God. Though we do that, it's as a church we give glory to God. And so that means that the primary purpose of your life and the primary purpose of my life and the primary purpose of Jacob's well is to give glory to God. We have a very God-centered view of church here. We gather Sunday mornings, not primarily to reach out to the lost, not primarily to fellowship with one another, not primarily to be discipled, although all those things happen. We gather Sunday mornings to glorify God. We gather Sunday mornings to worship God because He is worthy. And you know what? Because of His grace, because of His love, all those other things happen. And so our primary purpose and work in life is to glorify God. Now, how long should this glory last? Again, Paul uses phrases to try to let it go on and on and on and on. But he says this, he says, Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Amen means truly or so be it. And so there is an amazing promise in Scripture that the church of Jesus Christ will never be wiped out. That it will be never be stamped out. Throughout the Old Testament, if you get to read it, it's beautiful. God always preserves a remnant to worship Him, to glorify Him, no matter how wicked they are. He always preserves a remnant from Adam through Christ. His church will endure forever. There is a new book out, and I won't even mention what it is, but there is a new book out that is by one of the head pastors in America, a guy who is... A much better teacher than me. Just very, very captivating. And he put out this book, and it's absolutely contrary to Scripture. Basically, it says there is no hell, uh, there is no justice from God, there is no punishment from God. And there are tons of people following after this guy because he is a captivating speaker. I mean, magnificent. I've heard him teach, he's fantastic. But the only thing wrong with his theology is the Bible, right? That's pretty big. That's pretty big. And so people in the church, whenever these, I'll call him a heretic, I believe he is, whenever these heretics come up, people are always like, oh, the church is going to be dismembered. It's going to fall apart. It's, you know, it's going to get weak. It's not going to exist anymore. We're going to go off this way or that way. There have been heretics all throughout history. (laughs) There always have been. That's why most of these letters are written in the New Testament, to combat heresy in the church. That's why we have things like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles Creed. Because it was always combating horrible theology, false theology, heretical theology. We're actually told in Matthew that uh, when Jesus is talking to Peter, he says that on, uh, that, he, that he will establish his church on this rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church will move on. The gospel message will go forth for generation through generation for all eternity that is a great comfort to us let me end with this illustration um in my basement i have uh i've been remodeling a little bit and uh I'll, I'll give you a funny story and lead into it there there's this one light that i i i turned off the circuit breaker i took the light down it had a pull switch and the pulse switch was broken so i took it off uh, turned the circuit breaker back on and so I had these live wires kind of dangling free. it was safe ish. Um, but I went to Menard's and I picked up the the replacement part and I came back a few days later and I was like which which circuit breaker switch was that? And so um, so so I, I flipped the one that I thought it was, but I, I wasn't quite sure. And so I called my brother up and I He's he's an electrical engineer. I said, how do I test to see if I turned off the right circuit breaker or not? And he said, well, do you have a a tester? And I said, no. Otherwise, I wouldn't be calling you. Um, He said, well, here's what you can do. But I wouldn't recommend it. I love it how he gives advice like that. I wouldn't recommend you do this, but try it, right? Um, He said, here's what you can do. Take a light bulb and uh, touch one end of the wire to the silver part and touch the other end to the black part, right? Right? I'm like, oh, that makes, that makes sense. Um, well, I tried it, and the light bulb didn't go on, and then I, I did end up getting a little bit shocked. So um, it's just household electricity. It's not too strong. I didn't have to use gel that week, which was nice. So, But um, anyways, with electricity, if you ever do electricity, you ever you, you go and you buy the wiring. I think it's called Romax or something like that. Um, and when you cut it open, there's three wires in there. Only two of those wires are really needed. There's a black wire and a white wire. I do use a third wire, don't be scared for grounding, but you really only need two the black wire and the white wire. And one of those wires carries the power from the circuit breaker to the device, whether it be the light or the toaster or the microwave or the oven, whatever it might be. It carries the electricity there. But what the other wire does is it completes the loop, it brings it back to the circuit breaker. We as Christians are called to complete the loop. We are called to be conduits of God's power, that it would work in our lives, that it will work in us and through us. We are to complete the circuit. We are to bring the glory back to God because He is the source of power. You see, because in your life God is the power giver, He should always be the glory getter. I want to do something a little bit different today. As we close our time uh, looking at Paul's prayer, I actually want to give you a minute. And what I want you to do, I want you to open your Bibles. If you have it, if you don't, you can just pray. But I want you to take verse 14 through 21. And Paul prayed this for Christians that he loved dearly. What I want you to do is I want you to take someone that you dearly love, and I want you just to take a minute just to pray this for them. And then I'll close this in prayer in a little bit.